my thoughts, guide my words, Lord. I pray that you would help me to have a clear mind. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon me at this time, Father, and help me to say the things that you would have me to say. Lord, help this to be a time where we could learn from your word and also be challenged and exhorted in your word, Father. We love you. In your precious name, I pray. Amen. Alright, well we're there in Matthew chapter number 14. And if you remember last, the last couple weeks, the first week we were in Matthew 14, we talked about the death of John the Baptist and uh, dealt with that in regards to Jesus. And then last week we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, which was a famous, well-known story that the Bible talks about. Tonight, we're going to talk about uh, Jesus walking on water. And it, again, just another famous story that I, I, I feel like we just can't pass up and quickly go through these things. We have to make sure we study them. Now there's, there are three things. Well, there's way more than three things, but there are three pictures that I would like you to notice about this story tonight, and I have a lot of material, I have a lot to go through tonight, so you're going to have to just kind of keep up with me and, and, and stick with it and pay attention, and uh, we'll try to do it as quickly as we can and, and won't get out of here uh, late tonight, I promise, okay? We'll make sure you get out of here at a good time, but I want you to notice three pictures of this story. If you look at verse number 24 again, let's just read it again real quickly. Verse 24, the Bible says, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. If you remember, Jesus just got done feeding the 5,000, the Bible tells us that he constrained the the disciples, he told them, get in that ship and you go on the other side. And the Bible tells us that he went up into the mountain and he began to pray. We're going to look at that a little more closely later on in the sermon. And he sends off the disciples and they're traveling through a famous area, uh, uh, northern part of, of Israel. They're in the Sea of Galilee. They're traveling through there and a storm hits. And they, they find themselves, we'll look at verse 24 again. The ship was now in the midst of the sea. I want you to notice these words, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. The first picture I'd like you to see of this story is, number one, the picture of salvation. And you know that you can find the picture of salvation in so many stories in Scripture. Jesus is found throughout the entire Bible. Even in the stories, even in the Old Testament, you can find pictures of salvation. And I'd like you to see the picture of salvation that we're given in this story. The first thing I want you to see is our sin. The storm and the sea represents our sin, which is overpowering. The Bible says, the sea tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Verse 24, look at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered Him and said, Lord, if Thou bid me come unto Thee on the water. And He said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on water to to go to Jesus. So G Peter is actually walking on the water, going to Jesus, verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And you got to understand, this is, if there, if there is a just, uh, a classic illustration of salvation, this is it. I mean, this is what salvation is. Remember the song, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Love lifted me very deeply, staying within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing call. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. That's what salvation, in this picture, where Peter is there drowning in water, and the wind is boisterous, the, the waves are tossed, the wind was contrary. This is the 
classic picture of salvation in Scripture. And I need you to understand something. The wind and the waves and the storm and the sea represent our sin. And here's what you got to understand about this. It's overpowering. Now here, here's, here's the point, and, and keep your finger there in Matthew. Go with me to John 21, just real quickly. John 21, I want you to notice something about Peter. Now the Bible makes sure to tell us about Peter, and you would assume this anyway, but the Bible actually uh, shows us this in the Bible, John chapter 21. If you remember, Peter was a fisherman. Now it would make sense that a fisherman knew how to swim, right? And it would, it, it would not be, you know, we, we would not be stretching the truth to say, hey, Peter probably knew how to swim. But the interesting thing is, in John 21, we find the story where we actually see Peter swimming. So we know for a fact that Peter knew how to swim. Are you there in John 21? Look at verse 7. This is after the resurrection of Christ. Remember, Jesus was, resur- was crucified and Peter denied the Lord. And Jesus resurrected, but Peter said, I go fishing. He took a bunch of disciples with him, went back to his old life, went back to the things he used to do. And, and got backslidden, and Jesus is kind of coming back to him, is going to, you know, try to get him to come back to the will of God. John 21, 7 says, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord, because they're out sh- they're out fishing. Now remember, they weren't supposed to be fishing, because Jesus said, You're not going to fish anymore. From hence, I will make you fishers of men. He said, you're, you're going into full-time ministry. But now they were back to their own life, back to the world. They're out there fishing away. The, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the, the disciple John, he, he looks at P- Peter, and notice what he says, verse 17, it is the Lord. Because Jesus appears to them on the seashore there and begins to talk to them. They said, oh, it's Jesus. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked. That's what happens when you get backslidden, I guess. He was naked and, notice, did cast himself into the sea. So, obviously, they're out there, I don't know what they're doing, partying or whatever. He took his clothes off. Jesus shows up and catches him, you know, with his pants down, literally. And, and you know, Peter's embarrassed and he throws himself into the water. And the Bible says... Last part, verse 7, that cast himself into the sea, verse 8. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but as it were, 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes, verse 9. As soon as they were come to land. Okay, so Peter threw himself in the water, but then in, in verse 7, he throws him in the water. In verse 9, they're all at the land. And Jesus actually begins to have a conversation with Peter. It says, verse 9, as soon as they were come to the land, this includes Peter. They saw a fire coal, therefore, and fish laid thereon and bread. So here's the point. Obviously, Peter knows how to swim because he's out in the ship, throws himself in the ocean and swims to shore. You know, puts some clothes on, and then Jesus begins to talk to him. So I want you to understand this. Go back to Matthew 14. Peter knows how to swim. And he finds himself in water, which is not a, a, a weird place to be as a fisherman, but he's sinking. Now you say, well, why doesn't he just swim his way out of this problem? Here's why. Because of the storm. See, the wind was boisterous. The waves were huge. It was a huge storm to the point where he could not... Here's, here's the point that I'm trying to make. Peter could not swim himself out of this storm. And in the same way, our salvation, no human effort can get you out of the mess you're in. Do you understand that? There is nothing you can do. See, today religions say, well, if you live a good life, well, if you repent of your sins, well, if you start going to church, and if you quit the habit, and if you start living right, and you start getting rid of all the drugs and the alcohol, and look, we ought to live right, and we ought to get rid of the drugs, and we ought to get rid of the alcohol, and we ought to go to church, and we ought to get baptized. But let me tell you something. There is no human effort. There is nothing Peter could do. He could be the expert swimmer. He could get all the trophies and all the golden, you know, whatever you get at the Olympics for swimming. But here's the point. 
when it comes to salvation, you can't save yourself. He was sinking in sin. And see, this, here's what you got. I, I think if people just grasp this illustration of salvation, it would get rid of a bunch of these false doctrines. In the same way that Peter could not, by human effort, save himself, you and I, by our human effort, by our words, cannot save ourselves from our sins. Just real quickly, go to Isaiah 64. Just real, we got to do this fast because I, I just want you to see these verses, but I want you to see it. Today people say, well, if you, if you go to the confessional book, well, if you repent of your sins, if you quit sinning, and well, if you, if, if you get baptized, well, if you speak in tongues, well, if you do this, if you do that, then, then God is going to save you. You've got to understand this. It is good to do right, but, but you've got to understand how God looks at our righteousness. Isaiah 64 in verse 6, Isaiah 64 in verse 6 says this, But we are all as unclean things. Just underline this in your Bible, highlight it, write it on 3 by 5 card, memorize it. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rats. That's how God sees your good works. I get sick and tired of people coming up to me and saying, You have to repent of your sins in order to be saved. All your righteousnesses are as filthy rats. Everything you've ever done that is good, that is right, that is something that others would look at and say, Wow, that is so good. Wow, that is so nice. Wow, I am so glad you quit doing that. God looks down at it and He says, I'm not impressed. It's like filthy rags to me. He said, all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We, are, we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Go to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. We've got to do this fast because there's so much more to talk about tonight. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus, you find all those T-books. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy. Titus, Titus chapter 3. Look at verse 5. All those T-books in the New Testament. Titus chapter 3. You've got to understand this. Salvation is this. You are sinking and you cannot save yourself. Well, I know how to swim, but not in this storm. Well, I know, I know what I'm supposed to do. Not, not here, Peter. No human effort can save you. Nothing you can do can save you. You need a Savior. See, that's what salvation is. I need a Savior. Titus chapter 3, look at verse 5. Titus 3, 5 says, Not, not, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Don't tell me about the works of righteousness you've done. Well, in order to be saved, you have to quit doing this. you got to quit doing that. Don't, don't tell me about all the works of righteousness that you have done. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. we got to get back to this idea. If I'm saved, it's because of Jesus Christ. If I'm saved, it's by the washing and regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's not because I was a good swimmer. It's not because I did anything. There was no human effort. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. But He saved God, who is love, lifted me. Go back to Matthew 14, look at verse 25. I want you to see number one, our sin. It's overpowering. No human effort. Peter knew how to swim. The Bible even gives us an illustration. Peter knew how to swim and could not save himself out of this. Number two, I'd like you to see our Savior. Our Savior. We saw our sin. Look at our Savior. Matthew 14, 25. Matthew 14, 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them. Look, notice this. Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Jesus walked on water. That's amazing. I would have, I, I mean, I'd love to see that. Jesus just, here they are in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, you know, afraid that they're going to die. Peter's now sinking in the water, and there's Jesus standing on the water just looking at him. 
walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. So you got to understand this. This is what salvation is. Jesus can do something for Peter that Peter could not do for himself. Peter could not overpower the sea, but you know who could? Jesus Christ. See, Peter could not swim his way out of this, but Jesus was walking on the water. That's what salvation is. Jesus can do something for me that I cannot do for myself. I cannot overpower sin. I cannot pay for my sin. My righteousnesses are a filthy wreck. There's nothing I can do. There is not church. There's not enough church, not enough Bible reading, not enough prayer, not enough giving, not enough charity. There's not enough repenting of my sins that I can do to be saved. But Jesus can do something that I can't do. See, Jesus can overpower sin. Jesus can overpower death. Jesus can overpower the storm. But Peter can't. That's what salvation is. See, this is a classic illustration of salvation. I'm sinking in sin while Jesus is walking on the water. Jesus can do something we can't do. We said, number one, our sin. We said, number two, our Savior. Number three, I'd like you to see our salvation. Look at, look, look at the verse again. Matthew 14, look at verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, this was Peter, he cried. This is what he said. Saying, Lord, save me. See, here's what you got to understand. Salvation is believing and calling upon the Lord. Period. Peter called upon the Lord Jesus Christ, believing he would save him. And he was saved. Go, go to Romans chapter number 10. Romans, we've got we to move quickly because, I, like I said, i got a lot. Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 9. You cannot find anywhere in the Bible that tells us that salvation is a process. Salvation is this. We call on the Lord Jesus Christ believing that He will save us. And He does. Romans chapter 10. Are you there in verse 9? I can show you multiple verses. I'm just going to show you one passage. We could go to a lot of different passages. Romans chapter number 10. Look at verse 9. Romans chapter number 10. And verse 9. That if thou shalt confess. That's, that's with thy mouth. The Lord Jesus. That's something to do with your mouth. And shall believe. And by the way, I'm, I'm against this philosophy and I'm against this type of, you know, weak soul winning where it's like, well, I kind of explain the gospel to them and if they believe that they got saved and they don't have to pray. The Bible says if we confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus. If the Bible says if God wants you to confess with your mouth, then you better just confess with your mouth. Confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus, but notice it's not just saying words, okay? It's not just saying a prayer. And shalt believe, that's the faith, in thine heart, what are you believing? That God hath raised him from the dead. That he can do something that I can't do. He can resurrect himself from the grave. I can't do that. I sink in water. He walks on water. I believe he can do something I can't do. It says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Notice this. Thou might be saved. Is that what it says? It says thou shalt be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Look at verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Notice how it's your heart and your mouth. It's confession and believing. Verse 11. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth, that's the faith, on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that, notice this, call upon him. Is that what Peter did? Lord, save me. That's what salvation is. You just call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The thief on the cross. You know, it's different how everybody says it. The thief on the cross said, Remember me when thou enters into thy kingdom. But he called upon him and Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Salvation is called upon the name of the Lord. Maybe, maybe you said a nice prayer. Maybe you had somebody lead you through a nice prayer. 
Or maybe you just said, Lord, save me. But that's what salvation is. You call upon Christ, believing that He will save you. Go back to Matthew 14. Look at verse 31. Matthew 14 and verse 31. Matthew 14 and verse 31. The Bible says, and immediately, Matthew 14 and verse 31. And focus in on this word. Immediately. Do you see that? And immediately... Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou little faith, what for dost thou doubt? See, here's salvation. You, by faith, call upon the Lord, realizing I can't save myself, realizing I'm going to drown here, realizing if Jesus doesn't help me, I can't do this on my own. And you call upon him, and the Bible says, immediately Jesus stretched. See, you understand, salvation is immediate. Today there are people that want to teach us that salvation is a process. The Bible says you get born again. Okay, birth is not a process. Birth, you know, you have a pregnancy that takes a long time, and you have a labor that takes a long time, and you know, going out soul winning and knocking on doors and talking to people and bringing them the gospel and following up with them, that all may take a long time. But the moment they get born, it's a moment. It's immediate. It just happens. They are born into this world. That's what salvation is. It's immediately. Today, people try to make salvation a process. I had, my sister was telling me about somebody that she had been exposed to. And she's like, man, can you believe it? And she's telling me about this preacher who's like, salvation is a five-step process. First you have to repent, then you have to do this. And it's like all this real complicated thing. Look, salvation is this, call upon the name of the Lord, He'll save you. When, when the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, well, let me go grab a piece of paper and let me explain it to you because it's really complicated. The first thing is your heart needs to turn away from your sin and then you have to feel, feel guilty in your mind and then when that mind concept hits your heart concept and then you get, you know, that's true repentance. Look, this is what Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's not complicated. People try to make salvation complicated. It's a moment. And here's what's interesting about this story because when you put it down in a physical aspect, Okay, here's salvation. Peter is sinking deep in sin. He calls upon the Lord. Jesus Christ standing there doing something that Peter can't do. Reaches out, pulls him out of the water, puts him in the ship. That's salvation. Okay, if you believe and repent of your sins, which a lot of Baptists unfortunately do today, if you believe, well, you know, you, you can't just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to repent of your sins in order to be saved. Okay, that would be the equivalent of this. Peter is sinking and saying, Lord, save me. And then Jesus says to Peter, well, you get yourself out of the, out of the water first, and, and then I'll sink. Because what, what represents sin? The water. The sinking. The fact that I need help. See, you got to understand this. If I can repent of my sins, so you say, well, well wait, wait, that doesn't make sense. If Peter gets himself out of the water, then Peter doesn't need Jesus. But look, if I can repent of my sins, what do I need Jesus for? You say, what are you talking about? Go to Matthew chapter 1. Look at verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Whoa, 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 you know, Jesus looks down at Peter. Well, get yourself out of the water and then I'll save you. Well, Jesus, if I can get myself out of the water, I don't need you to save me. I need you to get me out of the water. I'm sinking. Matthew one twenty one. look what it says. Matthew one twenty one. The Bible says, it's about Jesus. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. All capital letters, just to make sure you're not, you know, talking about the wrong person. He shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their what? So if I can repent, if I can, well, the word repent means turn. If I can turn away from my sins without Jesus, because that's what the repent of your sins scribe says, you must repent of your sins before you come to Jesus. Well, look, if I can repent of my sins without Jesus, what do I need Jesus for? Because the purpose He came was to save His people from their sins. The reason He came was to bring me out of the water, was to pull me out of the water, was to put me in the ship. If Jesus looks at Peter and says, well, get yourself out of that mess first, 
Jesus, if I can get myself out of the mess. Here's the point. I can't get myself out of the mess. Salvation is Jesus doing something for me that I can't do for myself. Here's the other people that try to make it a process. Those that attack eternal security. Say, well, well, yeah, Jesus will save you. But if you sin, if you do something wrong, then, then God's going to take away your salvation. So here's the equivalent. God saves Peter, puts him on the boat, gets on the boat. Peter says something Jesus doesn't like, so he just throws him back over. Now look, how, how good of a savior would you be if you, took, if, you took Jesus, if you took Peter out of the water, then Peter says something dumb. You know, Peter says a lot of dumb things. always putting his foot in his mouth if you study the Gospels. Peter says something dumb, Jesus gets up and says, you know what, I'm done with you, Peter, and just throws him back overboard. That's what losing your salvation is. Is God just throws you back overboard. It makes no sense. The second part of, the, of that song, I, I like that song, the, the third verse says, souls in danger, look above, Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by His love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows His will obey. He, your Savior, wants to be, be saved today. That's what salvation is. The first picture we see is a picture of salvation. Here's salvation. You were sinking in sin, could not save yourself. You called on the Savior because He was doing something you couldn't do, and He saved you immediately. You didn't get yourself, you didn't get yourself halfway up the boat, and He gave you the last push. He saved you. That's what salvation is. So number one, we see in the story the picture of salvation. Number two, I'd like you to see the picture of service. Now you got to understand this, okay? Everything we just talked about, just forget it. <laughs> and, and let me give you another picture. Because oftentimes in Scripture, you'll have multiple applications. So I want to give you the first application. The first picture was a picture of salvation. The second picture I'd like you to see is a picture of service. And I'm just joking. Don't, don't forget all of it. But go back to Matthew 14. Look at verse 24. Matthew 14 and verse 24. We're going to go through this one as quickly as we can so we can spend some time on the third one. The second picture is a picture of service. The disciples were on the ship. Those on the ship, because remember, Peter was sinking deep in sin. Jesus took him out of the water, put him on the ship. And what did he do? He saved him, right? So everyone on the ship represents those who are saved. The disciples are on the ship. Those are re the representation of those that are saved. Peter, well look at, let's read it again. Matthew 14, look at verse 24. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Now notice verse 28. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee. Peter says, Hey, if it's really you, Jesus, then I want to be where you're at. He said, Bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, I love how Jesus doesn't give this long explanation. He doesn't say, Well, Peter, are you? he just says, Come. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. So you can understand this. On the ship are all the Christians. On the ship are all the same. Most Christians spend their entire lives on the ship. But every once in a while, there comes along somebody, who's represented by Peter here, who says, you know what, I'm not content just being on the ship. I don't, I don't want to just be one of these you know, church people that just kind of goes to church and doesn't do anything. Get a little closer to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is out there. Because uh, where's Jesus? Trying to save sinners, right? So where's he at? Out in the sea. Trying to rescue people. And, and Peter says, hey, I want to be where Jesus is. See, see, Peter represents the very few that don't want to just be on the ship. They want to get close to Jesus. He said, Lord, if it be thou, it be coming to thee. 
And he said, come. Now here's the miracle. Notice the miracle, verse 29. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, notice the miracle. He walked on the water. The only people we know of in the history of the world that walked on water. Jesus and Peter for a short time. Now think about that. There, it, it's a storm. He says, Jesus, if it's really you, I, want, I, don't, I don't want to be with all these lamos. I want to be where you're at. He said, I want to get over there. Can I get close to you? And Jesus says, hey, this is what Jesus always says. When somebody says, I want to get close to Jesus, here's what he always says. Come. He said, come on. Peter gets out and begins to walk on water. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Most Christians spend their lives on the ship. Most Christians never read their Bible cover to cover. Most Christians never get somebody saved. Most people's never, most Christians never get somebody baptized. Most Christians never get somebody growing in grace. Most Christians live just like the world does. Most Christians are afraid of their own shadow. Most Christians are just kind of on this ship while the entire world needs saving and they're just kind of safe on the ship. Well, it's safe here, Peter. But every once in a while, a Christian comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to take a risk. Because it took faith for Peter to get down on that water. But see, here's the thing. He did something that no one else had ever done. And you've got to understand this. When you do so, in order to do something that no one's ever done, you have to attempt things that no one's ever attempted. And by the way, today, you know, I mean, I want to, I don't know about you, but I want to live the kind of Christian life where it just kind of, I'm, I'm walking on water with Jesus. I'm doing things. Here's the thing. Could Peter walk on water? No. But when he's with Jesus, he could do it. I want to do things. I want to accomplish things in my life. I want to do things in my life that I could not do on my own, but with Jesus Christ, we can do it. With Jesus Christ, we can come. We cannot reach the Natomas, uh, you know, part of Sacramento with the God. I could not do it on my own, but with Jesus, I could do it. With, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I, I want to do things that other people aren't doing. I want to have successes that other people aren't doing. I'll be honest with you. One of my goals, and, and don't think this is the wrong way, you know, if, 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 if it isn't you, but one of my goals is to end my life, you know, hopefully many, many years from now. You know, 40, my wife and I have been married 10 years. My goal is that 40 years from now, 50 years from now, 60 years from now, you know, 70 years from now when I retire or die. <laughs> my goal is to end my life. I mean, can you think about 70, can you think about like 60 years from now? How uncommon it will be for one man to come to the end of his life and have been married to the same woman the entire life and all the children are from the same mom and dad. Can you, I mean, can you just think about how, un, think about how uncommon that is right now. Think about 60 years from now. You're going to be like, wow, that's crazy. I can't believe you. Walk on water? Yeah, I did it with Jesus. See, I want to do things that other people aren't doing and the only way to do it is to do it with Jesus. You can walk on water if you're with Jesus. You say, really? Would you? Well, Peter didn't. Here's the problem though. Here's the distraction. The reason most Christians don't do anything great for God, the reason most Christians are just going to do everything the world does, they're going to get distracted, they're, they're just going to live like the world, they're not going to accomplish anything great for God. Here's why. Because when they, well, just look at what it says. Look at verse 30. Matthew 14, 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, now notice the word saw there, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. What happened? While his focus is on Jesus, he can do anything. The moment he begins to look at the wind boisterous, the moment he begins to look at the world, begins to sink. You know how most Christians, you know, sometimes it's like, man, somebody got saved, it's like, man, they're just like walking on water because they're focused on Jesus. But the moment they get focused on the world, their life begins to sink. 
Happens to Peter, it'll happen to you, it's happened to many a preacher, it can happen to me, it can happen to any of us. See, here's the point. You can't be on the ship. Remember what that, what does that mean? It means you're saved, right? You can be on the ship and have your eyes on the storm. All the disciples were focused on the storm. They didn't go out of the boat because of the storm. Do you understand that? They, they, Peter gets out the boat because he's not focused on the storm. He's focused on Jesus Christ. And while his life is focused on Christ, he can do miracles. He can do great things. He can do things that he could not do on his own. But the moment his eyes get on the world, he begins to sing. See, you can be saved. You can be on the ship and have your eyes on the world. And by the way, most Christians do. If most Christians have their eyes on the world, it doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means they're focused on other things. They've got other priorities. But you cannot. But you cannot serve God. You cannot walk on water while having your eyes on the world. You understand that? So here's the point. You say, well, I want to do something great with God. But you better get focused on Jesus Christ. And if you're not going to be focused on Jesus Christ, you better just stay on that ship. Because there are pastors whose lives would have ended better if they never went into the ministry. And there are many Christians who, if they would have just stayed at Sunday morning only status, they probably would have had a better life than attempting to do something right for God and they got distracted because then their lives began to stay. But you know what? It's worth doing. It's worth attempting. Even if you sink a little bit, wouldn't you rather, at the end of the day, wouldn't you rather be Peter and say, hey, I walked on water. I tried something. I attempted something. I accomplished something. I don't know. You know, this, this, uh, this story is the classic salvation service to, uh, story. There's so many songs that go with it. Remember the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And this is my favorite part of that song. It says, And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see, Christians that are focused on Jesus Christ, they just don't really care. The World Cup, I didn't even know it was the World Cup. I didn't even know if they were playing. I didn't know, you know, I, I was scratching my head thinking to myself, why was the church so low this Sunday? What happened, you know, a couple of days ago? Like, four days later, my wife's like, well, it was a World Cup. I'm like, you know, because she found out about it, like, that day. You know, somebody told her, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, that's why. You say, like, you didn't know it was a World Cup? It's just something about the world just kind of turns dim when you focus on Jesus Christ. We saw, number one, the picture of salvation. We saw, number two, the picture of service. Number three, and we got 20 minutes to do this, so let's try to do it quickly. I want you to see the picture of the second coming. There's a picture of the second coming. Now let me give you a little bit of a, a disclaimer. I was talking to my good friend, uh, Pastor Steve Anderson, maybe, maybe six or eight months ago. And we often just talk about the Bible, talk about the Word of God. And we were, we were talking about this story. And uh, he was telling me about a sermon he was going to preach. And, and he began to explain to me this concept that he, he kind of learned and seen in the, in the story. And I thought, man, I've never really uh, seen that before, you know? So I, I started to study it out myself, and, and I looked at it, and I thought, wow, you know, I, I've never seen that. So I want to share that with you tonight, because I've never seen this concept um, in, in this story before. We saw first the picture of salvation, and we saw number two, the picture of service, but I can see the picture of the second coming. Now, if you look at Matthew 14, look at verse 22, and we're going to try to do this as, as quickly as we can, but I want you to, to kind of just focus for a little bit, because uh, there's a lot to... To, to talk about um, when it comes to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 22, the Bible says this, And straightway Jesus, okay, so we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go before him unto the other side while he uh, sent the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. 
And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Now in the Bible, and I don't have time to explain this, but you can study this out on your own. In the Bible, they worked off of a 12-hour kind of uh, time frame. The evening or the nighttime was considered from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And the daytime was considered from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So whenever you see the, the, the phrase, uh, the evening in the Bible, that's usually referring to what we would consider the 6 p.m. time frame. So in verse 23 it says, And when the evening was come, so it was 6 p.m., he was there alone. So Jesus is up on a mountain by himself at 6 p.m. praying. Verse 24, But the ship was now in the midst, the word midst means the middle of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Verse 25, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Now let me explain to you this concept of the fourth watch. Okay, The night was from, like we talked about, 6 p.m. evening to 6 a.m. morning. The night was divided into four Watches because you know this was how they kept security. The soldiers instead of having one guy stay up all night, you know, and kind of watch out for danger, they divide the night into first watch, second watch, third watch, fourth watch, and that way one guy kind of. So the first watch was 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. So one guy would be up 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. making sure you know he didn't see any enemies coming, whatever. And then at 9 p.m., guy number two would show up and relieve him, and that would be the second watch, 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. And then at 12 a.m., a third guy would come and relieve him. The third watch was from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch was the final watch, the darkest watch of the night, 3 a.m. till morning, 6 a.m. So if you look that back at verse 25, the Bible says, and in the fourth watch. So we know that the fourth watch is 3 a.m. Now, now just, just listen to this, okay? Jesus has been praying from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. That's nine hours of prayer. Now, just, just a thought. If God in the flesh thought that He needed to spend nine hours praying, you really think our little five and ten minute prayer sessions do the adequate that we need? Just, just a thought. I mean, He's praying all night long. At 6 p.m., He puts the disciples on the ship. He's praying all night long on the mountain. The disciples are out there in the midst of the Sea of Galilee during a storm. It shouldn't have taken Him this long to get on the other side. But because of the storm, they're just kind of in the mix. And the Bible says in verse 25, And in the fourth watch, which is 3 a.m. of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Look at verse 26. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. And straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is, it is I. Be not afraid. Okay, keep your finger there in Matthew 14. Go to John chapter number 6. John chapter number 6. Look at verse number 19. we got to do this quickly, okay? John chapter 6. i got 15 minutes of... I got 17 minutes. Okay, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, look at verse 19. John chapter 6 and verse 19. Here we have a parallel story of the same passage. So when they had rode about 5 and 20, I'm sorry, yeah, 5 and 20 or 30 furlongs. Okay, so 5 and 20 is 25 or 30 furlongs. So they had rode about 25 to 30 furlongs. They see Jesus walking on the sea and uh, drawing nigh unto the ship and they were afraid. Now, here's what you need to understand, okay? A furlong, well, according to the Bible, they were about 25 to 30 furlongs about halfway into the Sea of Galilee. Because remember in Matthew uh, 14, you don't have to go there, Matthew 14, 24, remember it says they were in the midst of the sea? Okay? And John tells us they were about 25 to 30 furlongs into their trip. So that lets us know that the middle 
of the Sea of Galilee is about 25 to 30 furlongs. A furlong is about an eighth of a mile. So eight furlongs uh, is one mile. That means, if you do the math, it means that roughly when you're about 25 to 30 furlongs into the Sea of Galilee, they were about three and a half miles into the Sea of Galilee. Okay, now here's the interesting thing. That tells us, if they're halfway there, that the Sea of Galilee trip was about 7 miles. And even today, you know, the Sea of Galilee from north to south measures about 7 miles. So they're obviously traveling north to south or south to north. They, they get about halfway there. The storm hits. They're kind of just stuck in the storm for hours and hours and hours. Jesus is up on a mountain looking down. He sees them. But at the fourth watch of the night, at 3 a.m., Jesus starts walking on the sea, walks to 3.5 miles, gets to them... Look at verse, uh, well let me, let me get there myself, I didn't turn to the, I didn't write down the right verse, but, but look, at, look at John 6, look at verse 20, just real quickly. But he said unto them, it is I, be not afraid, then they willingly received them into the ship. Now I want you to notice this, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Okay, so here's what you're going to understand, they're about three and a half miles into the Sea of Galilee, right? Okay, the moment, they're only to the midst. Matthew 14.24 says they were in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. But according to John chapter 6 and verse number 20, it says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21, it says, Then they willingly received them into the ship. So when Jesus gets into the ship, immediately the ship was at the land where they went. So they're about three and a half miles away from shore, but the moment Jesus gets in the ship, not only does the, wind, does the storm stop, they're immediately on the other side. Okay, that's a miracle that is often not uh, noticed in this passage, alright? So well, what's, how does this picture the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Go to Daniel chapter number 9. Daniel chapter number 9. And let me just show you this real quickly. I just thought when, I, when, when he told me that I, this, I thought, man, that's, that's interesting. And I kind of looked at it and I was like, well, that's pretty cool. So I wanted to show it to you tonight before we, uh, you know, get away from this passage, because uh, it'll be probably 20 years before I preach through Matthew 14 again, or something like that, alright? Daniel chapter 9, look at verse 27. Matthew chapter, Daniel chapter 9 in the Old Testament, you get to the end, there you got all those Old Testament prophets. Daniel chapter 9, he's the first of the minor prophets. Daniel chapter 9, look at verse number 27. The Bible says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now this is talking about the Antichrist, alright? He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now the week there is a week of years, okay? So it's not a week of days, it's not seven days, but it's seven years. It says, then I would know the truth, I'm, I'm sorry, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. This is referring to Daniel's 70th week. It's a week of years. Now notice this, and in the midst, do you see that? In the middle of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon, uh, upon the desolate. So here, here's the point. The Antichrist makes a covenant of a week of, a week of years, seven-year covenant. And at about, actually slightly before, the middle of that covenant, just slightly before the three and a half year mark. The Bible tells us he sets up the abomination of desolation. I don't have time to explain all this. You can study it out if you like. Matthew 24. He sets up the abomination of desolation and begins what we know as the great tribulation. Now, there are those out there that want to teach that the great tribulation is the pouring out of God's wrath. The only problem with that is that the Bible never teaches that. There's no verse in the Bible that tells you the great tribulation is the pouring out of God's wrath. If you study the word tribulation in scripture, you will find that it is always the persecution of believers or the persecution of 
individuals. And the great tribulation is a persecution that the Antichrist is going to bring upon the believers in the midst of the week. Now here's what's interesting, okay? The seven miles, right? They're traveling the Sea of Galilee seven miles. That represents the seven years of this covenant. Go to Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 19. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 19. Then I would know the truth. I'll wait for you to get there because I want you to see this. And i, I got to do this fast. Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 19. Then I would know the truth of the, notice this, fourth beast. Do you see that? Okay, when did Jesus come out to, to, to help them out? On the, at the fourth what? The fourth watch, right? What does that represent? The fourth watch represents the fourth beast or the fourth kingdom. Daniel 7.19 Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast which was diverse from all others exceeding dreadful whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass which devoured uh, which devoured breaking pieces and stabbed the residue with his feet and of the ten horns that were in his head and of the other which came up and before whom uh, there fell even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things whose look was more stout than his fellows. Verse 21 I beheld I want you to make note of this phrase. And the same horn, notice the same horn, which is the fourth beast, right? Made war with the saints. That's the great tribulation. Here's a question I have for the pre-tribbers. If, if we're all going to get raptured up before the Antichrist even shows up, who's he making war with? What saints is he making war with if we all, got, if we all left earth? He's making war with the saints because guess what? We're still here. And he begins to make war with the saints and prevailed against them. Okay, this is all explained in Revelation, Matthew 24. Here's the point. The Antichrist, at the fourth beast, at the fourth kingdom, makes he has a seven-year covenant. In the midst of the week, he begins to uh, make war with the saints, begins to bring a great tribulation. And then, of course, at the fourth watch, which is the fourth kingdom, Jesus shows up. Now here's what happens. In our story, they're traveling seven miles. They get about three and a half miles into it. They're in trouble. They're in affliction. They need help. Jesus shows up at the fourth watch. And immediately when he gets on the ship, they're on the other side. So they didn't go the remaining three and a half miles. They just, as soon as Jesus shows up, they're, they're safe, right? Go to John chapter 6. Look at verse 20. Let me just show that to you real quickly. John chapter 6 verse 20. And then we're going to go to Matthew 24. I'm running out of time, so just try to do it quickly. Um, we're going to go to John chapter 6, Matthew 24, Mark 13. Okay, if you can do that fast, some of you uh, can do that. Otherwise, just uh, sit there and act like you're looking at something. John chapter 6, look at verse 20. John chapter 6, verse 20. The Bible says, But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Verse 21. Then they willingly received them into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. So you see that? They received them in the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Go to Matthew 24, look at verse 21. Matthew 24, verse 21. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21. The Bible says, we got to do this quickly. Matthew 24, verse 21. Mark 13, if you want to start trying to get over there. Matthew 24, verse 21. The Bible says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. That's a great tribulation. Verse 22. And except those days should be shortened. Do you see that? There should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be short. Now, people like to take this verse out of context and say, well, this proves it work salvation. See, uh, you know, uh, and, and they say that you've got you to gotta endure to the end in order to be saved. But the, the context is, is talking about the fact that we're going to be saved in our flesh. Okay? Because obviously with the technology and the different, you know, all the things, if, if the Great Tribulation was allowed to go for as long as the Antichrist wanted it to go, we would all die. Okay? But here's what Jesus teaches. Go back to, go, go to Mark 13. Look at verse 19. Let me show it to you there. 
Mark 13, verse 19. The Antichrist has a seven-year plan. And at the three and a half year mark, he says, I'm going to start persecuting the saints. I'm going to start making war with the saints. I'm going to set up the abomination of desolation. I'm going to make people worship the abomination of desolation. And if they don't worship, if they worship it, I'm going to give them what's known as the mark of the beast. I'm going to give them the, the mark of the beast. And if they don't worship it, then I'm going to behead them. And everybody has to worship the beast. And then people are going to run off and say, I don't want to worship the beast, but I don't want to get my head cut off either. So I'm going to go get out of town. And we're going to go look for them. And we're going to behead them. We're going to make war with the saints. Okay? And that supposed to last, according to that covenant, another three and a half years, right? They're on the ship, and they're only halfway to where they need to go. But then Jesus shows up, and immediately they're on the other side. Mark 13, look at verse 19. For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. Verse 20. And except that the Lord shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom He hath chosen... He has shortened the day. So here's what's interesting. Just like in that story, Jesus meets them halfway there, and then they're on the other side immediately. They don't have to travel the rest of the way. With the tribulation, Jesus is going to meet us halfway there, and then He's going to shorten the days, and we're just going to get, we're just going to be safe on the other side. Which is kind of an interesting concept. And if I went through that real quickly, here's, here's, here's the point. The seven-year covenant is represented by the seven-mile trip across the Sea of Galilee. Slightly before the halfway mark, the Great Tribulation begins, three and a half miles into the trip. They're in trouble. At the fourth watch, which is the fourth kingdom, because the if you study Daniel, you have the first kingdom, the second kingdom, the third kingdom, the fourth kingdom, which is the little horn, which is the Antichrist. At the fourth kingdom, the great tribulation begins, the war with the saints, and at the fourth kingdom, at the fourth watch, Jesus met them halfway there, in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of their affliction, in the midst of their tribulation, and as soon as He gets on the ship, they're immediately on the other side, and the Bible says, tells us that He's going to shorten those days for us. As soon as we meet Him, He's going to just put us on the other side. The tribulation period is shortened. Immediately the ship was on the other side, whithersoever they went. Alright, well we're pretty much out of time. So, in the story we saw three pictures. Number one, the picture of salvation. Number two, the picture of service. And number three, the picture of the second coming. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for our church, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to be able to study uh, your word. Thank you for Wednesday night Bible study where we could really just take the time and we don't have to try to... uh, well, we still rush, but we're not having to rush through the chapters. We can really just uh, try to get everything we can out of these. I pray, Lord, that the sermon tonight and the study would have helped somebody, Lord, to understand either what it means to serve Jesus Christ and to get out of the boat, or what salvation is, that it's, it's a moment, it's immediately, we just call upon the Lord and He saves us. And about the second coming, just realizing that the Antichrist can have all sorts of plans and he can have all sorts of things he wants to do and he wants to obliviate us, but as soon as Jesus shows up, we're just going to be on the other side. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be thankful for that. Help us to realize that you're, you're always going to get us through the tribulation, through our lives now, and through the great tribulation. We love you, Lord. In your precious name I pray. Amen.